0: Do grab a seat and do grab a Bible as well and uh, turn back to that passage uh, in Romans chapter two. If you would, page number was 940. Uh, thank you. 940 Romans chapter two uh, from verse 17. Let's uh, let's pray, shall we? As we um, as we have a look at this. Father, just like a uh, just like a farmer. Uh, ploughs and sows and um, then expects the sun to shine, the rain to come um, and and a harvest to to be yielded. Um, So our prayer now as the um, as the seed of your word is sown, uh, we ask for your spirit to be at work. Uh, We ask for um, a harvest of growth in Christ to come. And we ask it for Jesus sake. Amen. wonder whether um, wonder whether you've ever told someone that you're a Christian, maybe guy at work or neighbor, friend, uh, someone like that. And, and they've said to you, oh, I'm not, you know, for me, I'm not really into religion myself. Um, I, I'm not really a religious kind of person. And, and you thought to yourself, well, I'm not religious either. I've just told you I'm a Christian. Um, <laughs> it it kind of highlights, doesn't it, um, that that. Many Bible believing Christians wouldn't necessarily describe ourselves as religious people uh, or, or even define Christianity as a religion. Um, although, of course, the you know, the world at large certainly does do that, uh, really, doesn't it? So it's, it's, it's almost like the sort of two different definitions uh, of the word religion floating around. Um, and, and I think that's right. Actually, I think it's I think it's right to acknowledge that. Uh, for example, if you look in the Oxford English dictionaries, they define religion as the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God or gods. And, and so I suppose with a definition like that, I, I, I guess you'd class Christianity as a as a religion, wouldn't you? Um, but but there is there is such a profound difference between christianity and all the other major faiths that to lump christianity into the same category is is just to misunderstand i think what biblical christianity is And, and that's because what what all the major religions have in common is that their founders were teachers who showed people what we have to do in order to be in a right relationship with whomever the deity or deities uh, is that that we're being called to believe in. In other words, it's salvation, it's rescue, it's being made right with God or the gods through moral effort, through religious effort on on our part. Whereas the Jesus of the Bible did not come uh, simply to teach us how to save ourselves, he came to actually save us himself. Do you see, he didn't come to show us the way of salvation, he came to be the way of salvation. And and so if we define religion as as various ways of being made right with God or the gods, uh, but by by moral or religious effort, well then biblical Christians are going to see the emptiness of religion, the, the inability of religion to solve the problem of sin. Um, and, and that's what we're going to see here, I think, in this, this second half of uh, Romans chapter two. If you've been with us so far, last few Sundays, um, uh, Paul has been Paul has been desperate to lay out uh, in in all of its glory what he's called in chapter one, verse one, the gospel of God. But but first, before he does that, and he's getting there, <laughs> but before he does that, he's diagnosing the problem for which the gospel is the answer. And the problem is the most fundamental problem for the whole of humanity, which is the problem of our sin. So Paul's been diagnosing the the human condition, hasn't he? In the second half of chapter 1, if you remember, he's been exposing kind of paganism and and idolatry that that the whole of mankind has actually suppressed. It's buried the truth about God and it's turned to the worship of other things instead, thus incurring God's anger, God's wrath and God's judgment. Uh, and then in the first half of chapter two, Paul has he's turned his attention to the to the Jews and to and to other um, sort of moralizers, uh, people who would say, "Well, of course, I'm not like that. That, that, that all that stuff that doesn't apply to me. I, I'm I'm the Jew with the law, you know. I, I'm the good and upright person. I'm the pillar of the community. I, I'm not included in that sort of damning assessment of humanity." But Paul then doesn't he strips away every excuse. To show that everyone's going to be judged equally. It's a level playing field. Uh, God's judgment is unavoidable. God's judgment is applied impartially to all people with no exceptions, Jew or Gentile. It's been a devastating picture, actually, hasn't it? Of the of the whole of humanity designed to kind of uh, shake us to the core. If you like, as, as we read it. And so see the seriousness of our sin and the reality of God's judgment on all people because of sin. But it would be so easy to kind of respond to that, that sort of damning assessment by simply throwing ourselves into religion. You know, into, into trying harder to please God by what we do. So our response to God's assessment could easily be, wow, I'd better get along to church a bit more often then. Or I'd better read my Bible a bit more. I'd better serve more or give more or whatever. In other words, to turn to religion in order to overcome this problem of sin. And and that, of course, can be done with Christianity as as well. We can can look to Jesus simply as a teacher or a helper uh, or a moral example to help us live good enough lives to earn God's blessing. That's Christian religion. All the time avoiding the fact that Jesus came as the saviour. And so end up trusting effectively, practically in our own religious or moral effort to make us right with God rather than in what Christ has achieved for us on the cross. And and Paul's message here in, in these verses is don't look for your answers in religion because religion cannot help you. Religion is powerless to overcome the problem of sin. That's Paul's big point uh, in these verses, I think. Now, now in Paul's uh, time, of course, there was, there was no group of people who relied more on religion than the Jews. Um, so it's to the Jews, again, that Paul uh, is specifically addressing uh, these comments. So it's bad news for them, for the first century Jew. But as we'll see, it's bad news for us as well. Um, if, if we are tempted to do the same and, and kind of run, to ref, run for refuge to, to religion rather than to the, the gospel of God. So, so what Paul does here, I think, is he takes sort of two aspects of, of Jewish, the Jewish religion of the time, two sort of areas of, of their religious devotion which he anticipates they could use as objections to what he's been talking about. Two things they would consider to be protection for them against the judgment of God. Uh, and these two things are firstly the law and kind of relying on religious rules, if you like, to keep you from God's judgment. And then secondly, circumcision, uh, which was about relying on, on religious rights, uh, if you like, signs to, to, to keep you from God's judgment so, so what he's doing here he's kind of anticipating their objection how can you say that that we the Jews we're in the same boat as the Gentiles when we've got the law or, or how can you say we're in the same boat as the Gentiles when we have circumcision we have that sign of, of being God's covenant people how can you say that how, how can we have these blessings of of being Jews of being God's covenant people and yet still be no better off well, let's, let's have a look at what Paul has to say about their, their religion and their, their religious devotion. Uh, first of all, in verses 17 to 24, um, in the area of the law or, or, or the area of, of religious rule keeping. And have a look at verse 17, because the first thing you see here is that they relied on the law. And of course, what we mean by the law here is, is the, the law of Moses that, that uh, they received at, Israel received at Mount Sinai. So as Jews, they were relying on the fact that they had been given the law when all the surrounding nations had not. And they saw that as securing God's favor on them as a people. But they didn't only rely on the law. Look, verse 17, they they bragged or they, they boasted about their relationship to God. They, they took great pride in the fact that he was he was their god he was the he was the god of the jews they they had the monopoly on on the one true god while the gentiles they they worshiped the pagan gods the false gods um also notice look verse 18 that they they knew god's will and they approved what is excellent in other words, they could distinguish God's law from from man's. They, they could discern right from wrong um, because they'd been instructed from the law. And, and those those weren't bad things, of course. You know, have, having the law gave them real ad- advantages. But they were also sources of great religious pride for them as well. Um, So if you just kind of just imagine yourself a Jew in Paul's day, you've been you've been brought up uh, being, being instructed in the law of Moses. It's totally central to your way of life. It's the law that was given to your ancestors by by God himself when he miraculously rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And 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 this law, it covers every area of your life. You have moral laws to govern your behavior. You have religious laws about how God is to be worshipped and how atonement for sin is to be made. You've got social laws about who you can marry. You've got lifestyle laws about your diet and your clothing. You see, as a Jew, that the law govern govern everything everything about your living. And and so it's a huge source of of national pride. It it gives you a kind of great sense of superiority, a great sense of privilege. You are the ones who know God. You you have the monopoly on his will, on his standards, on his truth because you have the law. Can, Can you imagine what that would be like? To have that sense of, pride that goes with with you knowing the law of God and Paul kind of picks up on the fact that this this sense of superiority made them feel like they were the ones who were therefore competent to teach others uh, about the truth so uh, end of verse 19 look uh, they could be the the guide to the blind the a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, in other words, they were the ones who were, who were competent to, to teach and instruct and bring light and guidance to others, because end of verse twenty they have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. did you, you see the point for, for the jew that the law was both a a great source of national pride and it, it utterly and and genuinely convinced them that that he was the uh, uh, that the jew was the religious instructor of the world by by god's appointment and and actually paul doesn't deny that here that the, the language that he uses is actually very close to some of the old testament descriptions uh, of of the the mission that israel had to the to the nations, here's a quote from Isaiah 42, um, 6 and 7. Just see how close the language is to what Paul's just been using. Um, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from their dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So you see, with kind of Old Testament prophecies like that, the Jews had every reason to see themselves as able to teach others the truth because they, through the law possessed the truth and paul doesn't doesn't disagree with them, but he is leveling a charge uh, against them and you can see what that is look in verse uh, verse twenty one have a look at verse twenty one um, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, the the charge here is that they, well, they don't really practice what they preach. They They boast in their knowledge of the Lord, but they're not living it out. And, and you'll notice he, he makes the point through a series of kind of rhetorical questions. In other words, questions that he doesn't expect them to answer. He's, he's just kind of using them as a means of leveling the, the charge against them. He, sa- he says you're teaching others, but what about you? You teach others it's wrong to steal, but are, but are you stealing? You, you're speaking out against a, a, adultery, but, but are you doing it? Uh, You you say you hate idolatry, but but are you robbing the pagan temples for their idols like the others do? And and he kind of summarizes it, doesn't he, in verse 23. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Do you see that they're kind of rhetorical questions to to challenge them about their practice uh, and whether they practice what they preach, whether they are living with integrity. You're teaching the law, but are you obeying the law? And he's got the answer for them in verse 24, where he quotes from from uh, from Isaiah 52, verse five, and and he applies it to them. Have a look at verse 24 for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it's it's kind of quite ironic there that originally Isaiah addressed uh, uh, those words to uh, to the pagans who were blaspheming God's name. Whereas Paul uses the same words here with a kind of painful twist as he applies them to the Jews, to to God's old covenant people and says that God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, you Jews. You're doing what Isaiah accused the pagans of doing. And he's kind of he's expanding here, isn't he, on, on the same point that he made uh, in in the last passage back in verse thirteen, if you remember, that it's not hearers of the law who are righteous before God; it's those who do the law; it's, the, it's those who obey the law who will be justified. God requires that people obey the law, not simply possess the law. But but these Jews here, Paul implies, they're they're failing to do that. And and the very areas in which they teach others are the ones where they're failing themselves and so bringing dishonor to God. Instead of being a light to the Gentiles, verse 19, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, verse 24, because Israel are failing to practice what they preach. They're they're very proud of their their unique status, their, their religious heritage, their devotion to the law. They boast in it. And yet it does them no good at all because they fail at the critical point, which is that they don't obey it. And friends, we, must, we mustn't think that Paul's being kind of anti-Semitic here. There's a, the, that's an accusation that's sometimes been made about Paul. Uh, we should remember Paul is a Jew. <laughs> In fact, all the apostles are Jews. And of course, Jesus himself was born uh, a Jew. So there's, there's no hatred of Jews going on here. And it, and it shouldn't need to be said that... You know, Christians should detest the sinfulness of, of anti-Semitism. I think any right-thinking person uh, should. Um, but Paul's appealing here to, to his fellow countrymen that he, that he loves and wants to see transformed by the gospel. Re- remember, his big message in these chapters is that everyone needs the gospel because everyone is in the same state before God. And Paul doesn't want his his fellow Jews, his fellow countrymen, to think that they are exempt from God's judgment and so have no need of his gospel. No, the whole of mankind is guilty before God, and even Israel is guilty before God, because even though they have and love to boast in the law, even though they have all their religious devotion, yet they fail at the point of obedience. And friends, this this failure is is not particular to the sort of first century Judaism of, of Paul's day. It's the failure of all religion. It's a failure even of Christianized religion. Because the reason that Christ had to come into the world and be hung on a cross in our place is because religious devotion, religious rule keeping is not enough to be pleasing to God. Uh, let me give you an example maybe to, um, to explain why. Um, imagine, imagine George. Okay? George is a religious man. Okay? He, was, he was brought up to go to church and, and, and he's done so for most of his life. He was, maybe he was a deacon a few years ago. He taught the Sunday school a bit. Uh, he he's, he's tries to get to all the members meetings he can. Um, alongside that, he's quite active in his community as well. He loves to help people who are who are less fortunate than himself. So George has definitely got a religious side to him. But then he's got the rest of his life as well, and his life as a as a husband, as a as a worker, a uh, member of his, his his bowls club or his golf club or whatever. It's all quite separate from his Christian life. In, in fact, most days go by, and George doesn't even think about God at all he's he's out enjoying himself he's he's working and so on and and certainly he doesn't let his non-religious life get affected very much by his religious thinking He, he keeps those things in in two very separate compartments of his of his life in other words George is a guy with a normal life that keeps him happy and a quite separate religious life that he has in order to keep God happy But then he comes to church one week and he gets hit by the full force of Romans 1 and 2, that God is angry with humanity because of sin and that God's anger will lead to his judgment and that everyone is in the same boat. And so he thinks to himself, well, I'd better get in God's good books a bit more then. I'd better go to church a bit more often. I'd better up my standing order. Maybe I'd better stand to be a Sunday school teacher again. In other words, I'd better get a bit more religious to overcome this problem of sin. Do you see? And Paul says, no, George, no, you've got it all wrong, because religion cannot help. In fact, there was no one more religiously devout than the Jews. But no matter the level of our religious devotion, we will fail at the critical point, which is that we cannot keep the law. All it does is show up our sin. It shows up that we can't keep it. you see? And and friends, the message for us here is don't be a George or a a Georgina. Don't think that religious devotion and rule keeping will make a scrap of difference to the problem of sin. It is powerless to help you because you cannot keep it. Let's move on then. Have a look at verses 25 to 29. Uh, because you can see something else here about the failure of religion to help to, to, to solve the problem of our sin. They, they had the law and, and that didn't help. So secondly, what about circumcision? In fact, what about relying on religious rights like circumcision to cure the problem of our sin? And what Paul says about that here would have been, I think, a real kick in the teeth. Uh, for his his Jewish readers here, because next to the law, the, the most distinguishing sign of of Jewishness, if you like, was was circumcision. So, so that was, uh, of, of course, if you know your Old Testaments, that was the the God given sign of, of the old covenant. It's what marked out uh, Israel as, as God's covenant people. But but it seems that the circumcision had become, by by Paul's time, um, kind of a bit of an insurance policy, if you like, as though the fact of their circumcision somehow guaranteed their immunity from God's judgment on their sin, as though it had some kind of saving effect, if you like. In fact, I I don't think it's too dissimilar from how uh, people today can view baptism. It's, it's, It's particularly prevalent. Perhaps among the parts of the church that baptize infants, you know, we'd better get little Johnny done just in case anything happens. That, that kind of thing. But actually, I think it's around in believers, Baptist circles uh, as well. You know, uh, well, I might not be a practicing Christian anymore, but at least I got baptized as a teenager. So I'm covered. Right. And, and in both cases, baptism there is being viewed as a kind of security measure, isn't it? A kind of a kind of insurance policy uh, uh, for when I die. And and here, as, as Paul turns his attention to the Jews' reliance on circumcision to do the same thing, he doesn't deny that it has any value if you observe the law. In other words, its value is dependent upon obedience. And he's just been demonstrating, of course, that even Jewish obedience to the law never reaches the level required for salvation. And so he draws kind of two conclusions uh, from all this, which I think would have rocked the world of of his Jewish readers. And and the first conclusion, look, is in the second half of verse uh, 25, where he tells them, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, if you break the law, you become as though you'd never been circumcised at all. That this this circumcision that you value so highly that you think is your your ticket out of judgment, your guarantee of of rescue, it's less than useless if it's not accompanied by keeping the law. The law that he's just told them they haven't been keeping. And then look at verse uh, verse 26. Here's the the double whammy. Um, uh, So if a man who is uncircumcised... Keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And and, and do you see why that would have sort of shocked the Jews? Circumcision was the great—it was the great covenant sign. But Paul is saying your covenant relationship with God is not dependent on your circumcision. If you break the law, and you do, you are as good as uncircumcised. Your your covenant relationship counts for nothing. And the Gentiles, who are uncircumcised, if they should keep the law, then they would be counted as good as circumcised. In in fact, uh, verse 27, uh, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So, So he's saying that the real sign... Yeah, the, the real evidence of being in the covenant people of God, it's not possessing the law, it's not circumcision, it's obedience. It's obedience to the law that is the evidence of being God's covenant people, su- such that the obedient Gentile uh, condemns or, or kind of sits in judgment over the disobedient Jew. Now, of course, Paul's, Paul's speaking hypothetically here, isn't he? Because as he's told us already, there is no one, Jew or Gentile, who can obey the law enough to be saved. He's going to reiterate that again in chapter 3. But he's, he's making the point very, very forcibly to, to his Jewish readers that their reliance on circumcision to save them is misplaced. He's saying don't bank on it because it won't work. And and having done that, he he now, in the the final couple of verses uh, of the chapter, he effectively redefines for them what it means to be a a true Jew. The the, the, the Jew's own definition of of what it meant to be a Jew, we've we've seen, haven't we, at the beginning of the passage, and it's all about circumcision, it's all about possession of the law, it's all about religious rules and rights, if you like, the, the outward signs. And, and yes, that, that certainly shows that a person is of the, of the physical nation uh, of, of Israel. But that's not, says Paul, what it means to be a, a true Jew. Have a look at uh, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, so his point here is that to be, a, to be a real Jew, if you like, to be one of, to be one of God's real covenant people, it's, it's not about your DNA. It's not about your, your physical birthline, line, your, your descent from Abraham. It's, it's not about your circumcision. It's not about your possession of the religious rule book. It's about being a Jew inwardly and it's circumcision of the heart that is necessary for that. It's not about, you know, removing a piece of skin. True circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It's like Ezekiel says, it's removing our hard hearts of stone and, and giving us a heart of flesh. You know, a heart that makes us come alive to the, to the things of God. And that doesn't happen by the law. By, by the written code, it happens by the spirit. Which means that while people might be content with what is outward and visible to others, what's what's superficial. Actually, what matters to God is a deep inward work of the Holy Spirit applied to our very hearts. You see? And and friends, what Paul writes here about circumcision and its importance to the Jew could also be said uh, about baptism and its importance to the Christian. We should rightly value Christian baptism, but we shouldn't see it as securing our salvation or guaranteeing our entry into the family of God. I realize that, that people can mistakenly assume that that's the case, and that's because, sadly, some parts of the church even teach it. But friends, the Bible doesn't teach it. To be truly one of God's people is to be one inwardly. And true baptism is in the heart by the spirit of God. But baptism in water is the sign on the outside of what takes place in the heart. And if the heart is never changed. Then the sign, the religious rite, becomes irrelevant. So here are. Here are two examples from the from the Jewish religion of Paul's day to show you and me that religion can't help you. Don't rely on increased religious devotion. Don't rely on your baptism or, or on any religious rite or ceremony. A regular communion would be another example. Those things have no saving power because God is going to look at your heart. And if there's no circumcision of the heart, It doesn't matter what's on the outside. And friends, changing the hearts is something that we just cannot do. It requires inner transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring about through the gospel. And friends, that's why even the religious person, even the so-called spiritual person with their sort of pick and mix religion, needs the gospel. He's given us, isn't he? Um, he's given us a couple of chapters here of of how God sees humanity. And it's it's not pretty, is it? It's a bleak diagnosis. He, and he's, he's doing it so that all of us will get to the point of understanding and and owning that we are sinful, owning that we are sinful, that we are flawed and, and we're guilty. And, you know, friends, in our, in our Western culture, that's not a way we like to think about ourselves, is it? It's, it's why we, I guess, instinctively recoil at, at passages like this. And it's, it's hardly surprising, really, because actually much of Western culture has, has gone through something of a sort of psychological revolution. Um, in in recent history which has radically revised actually perhaps without us realizing it the way that we think about ourselves there, there have been some, some good things that have come out of that for example we're a bit more attentive to our, our mental health our emotional well-being than we we used to be we don't hide that away like we used to anymore I think that's generally a good thing however what seems to have been lost uh, uh, along the way is our willingness to admit personal guilt You know, in our so-called sophistication, we prefer to talk about negative patterns of behavior, don't we? Rather than sinful patterns of behavior. Indeed, the language of sin has gradually faded out of our culture, hasn't it? As a much more therapeutic culture looks for answers in things like raising self-esteem. Or better education or or, or greater social equality or or more therapy or more more positive thinking and and so on. And, And Romans here not only challenges how modern culture wants us to see ourselves, but actually I think it resonates with what we deep down know about ourselves, which is that we are sinners We are flawed and guilty and that sin is humanity's biggest problem and that trying harder won't fix us and blaming society won't fix us. And better education won't fix us and therapy won't fix us and playing the victim won't fix us and neither will religious rights and rule keeping fix us. And, and, you know, friends, there's something uh, there's something refreshing about that, don't you think there's something Honest and real about recognizing that, isn't there? That, that as Romans 3 uh, 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 puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's great realism there, don't you reckon? And, and when we embrace the fact that by nature we are broken and sinful, it means we've got nothing to hide anymore. Means we don't have to keep pretending that we can save ourselves, you know, by our moralism or, or our religious rights and, and rule keeping. Because, friends, so much religion is just sort of superficial mask wearing, isn't it? As one writer put it, it's putting on our Sunday best and pretending. Because the truth, friends, is that we're, we're sinners. And it's only pride. That prevents us from being more open and honest with each other about that. But it's being open and honest about that. That is the first step towards realizing our need of the gospel of God. That gospel that says we can't save ourselves and not even religion can save us. It's powerless to overcome the problem of sin. That gospel that says everyone has sinned. But everyone is welcome. So come and find rescue at the foot of the cross. That's the gospel that he's longing to tell us about. We'll get there. Shall we pray? Father, thank you. Um, thank you once again for the, um, I guess, the tough words of these chapters um, Thank you that you love us enough to give us a healthy dose of realism here. Realism about the reality of our sin and and, and its consequences. And and thank you that you do that not to harm us, but so that we would embrace the truth of it. And recognize our need of your solution to it in the gospel of God. Um, So that we might have hearts transformed by your spirit. And so be led in repentance and faith to the foot of the cross. Father, please would you be doing that work in us and through us, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.